0: And now for introductions. We're joined today by Dr. Laura Perry. She's the Regional Chair of Geriatric Medical Education for Providence, Oregon, uh, overseeing geriatric training um, for our four uh, uh, residency programs in Oregon. She was previously on faculty at the University of California, San Francisco Geriatrics, and has practiced in primary care and nursing home settings. Doctor Perry is passionate about providing patient-centered care for older adults that takes into account their unique circumstances, their values and their priorities, as well as their conditions. Uh, Thank you, Doctor Perry for coming and teaching us today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me today. I'm really happy to be here. Before we begin, I just wanna say I have no financial disclosures. Um, I only get my money from Providence. Um, And I'm gonna talk about a series of patients toward the later part of this talk. Um, I want you to know that a number of the details identifying them have been changed, especially their names. And while I use some photos to represent these patients, these are not photos of the patients, but ones that I found by Googling. I hope today that by the time we're done with this talk, you'll have accomplished a few things. One, you'll be able to identify the role that trauma plays in older adults' lives. Two, that you'll start to practice trauma-informed care for your older patients. That's a big process in a tall order, but we'll just get to the beginning stages. And most importantly, I think, that you can work to avoid
2: re-triggering past traumas when providing care for an older adult. When we talk about trauma, we're talking about our patient's horror stories.
1: One of the most rewarding parts of being a doctor, and particularly a generalist, is that patients trust you with their deepest, darkest secrets. There's an honor, a privilege, and a sacred nature to that role. At the same time, this can also be one of the most gut-wrenching and debilitating parts of being a doctor. The world can be a cruel and violent place. And in our roles, we'll come into intimate contact with people whose lives have contained brutal chapters. One of our roles is to sit, to listen, and to make room for people when they need someone to tell their worst memories. I would first like to dismiss the notion that there is an easy or straightforward way to do this. And particularly that it's easy or straightforward to create boundaries between ourselves and our patients it is of equal importance that we show up for our patients and be present as human beings in the room with them when they need us and that we do so in a way that does not deplete ourselves so that we can have careers that are long i would argue that figuring out how to do this is a career long And I wanna specifically say that to the residents and other learners in the room. I think sometimes you receive messages that are a bit flippant. All you need to do is learn how to create boundaries as if that's a simple process. As geopolitics would inform us, boundaries are fluid, boundaries are negotiable, and boundaries can be a source of constant conflict. That is normal and there is nothing wrong with you for continuing to figure out or for struggling to do so. Sometimes the stories that our patients share with us will have a familiar tinge. They will evoke our own memories of horror or brutality. Sometimes the things we witness our patients experiencing will hurt us and create our own horror stories. The last four years since the onset of COVID in particular, have offered more abundant opportunities for horror stories. In this talk, I will refer to a few patient cases that were very difficult for me to bear witness to. And so in advance, I wanna let you know that both this talk and the practice of medicine will contain some troubling aspects. I invite you to ground yourself in preparation, not to brace yourself, which is to activate your sympathetic nervous system, but rather to activate your parasympathetic nervous system. By finding a familiar friend in the audience with whom you can exchange knowing glances or the squeeze of a hand. By finding a soothing sensation that can bring you out of your mind and back into your body. For me, a grounding practice that a yoga teacher taught me was to rub my thumbs along my fingertips and my fingertips along my palms or by simply looking around the room and observing what you see, and thus reminding yourself that you are in a safe environment and not in whatever past place you have been in that brought you fear. And to help keep you both grounded and focused as we move throughout the talk, I'd like to share the best piece of doctoring advice that I have ever received from my grandfather when he was 93 years old. My grandfather was a psychiatrist who started his career in the Navy during the Korean War. His first duty assignment was to evaluate Navy men as they returned from combat to determine whether they were fit to return to duty or whether they were suffering too much from the effects of what they then called combat fatigue. He trained before the release of the first antipsychotic drug when the standard of care for psychosis was either electroshock treatment or iatrogenic hypoglycemia from insulin. He was certainly an expert in both hearing about and experiencing horror stories. When he was alive, I used to consult him about my most difficult cases. And about one of those, he gave me the advice, sometimes a patient
2: needs a friend. Please keep that in your hearts. I'd like to start by reviewing what trauma does to
1: people. This book was published 10 years ago and hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, spending more than two years there. The popularity of this book really changed the public conversation about trauma. It was a catalyst in the conversation about trauma informed care. The thesis underlying this book is that trauma changes how our brain and autonomic nervous system behave. Trauma does not just cause post-traumatic stress disorder, which is an isolated psychological illness, it also has a myriad of physical effects. Now, while this book really did change the conversation and maybe something that you think after this talk you want to pick up if you haven't already read it, I do want to note that both this book and its author are far from perfect. Dr. Vander has since faced accusations of misconduct and maltreatment from a number of people he'd worked with. So for alternatives, I recommend either When the Body Says No by Gabor Mate or Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine. Because this is such a hot topic, many of our patients will have read the book or have learned about trauma through social media or the popular press. Many of them want you to speak the language that they speak. So let's talk through some terms to help get you on the same page. Much of the language around trauma recently has focused on ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences. There's quite a bit of variability in how these are defined, especially if you're looking at data from different countries. For example, in China, many of the studies on ACEs focus on economic deprivation and the impacts of the Cultural Revolution. In the United States, an ACEs questionnaire may include a question about whether a family member was incarcerated. In the UK, ACEs service typically include questions about serious childhood illnesses that may have impacted the person's schooling. In general, a lot of the research that has been done over the last 10 to 15 years has focused on the question, what is the relative rate of X disorder in people who have zero ACEs versus those who have one or more or a given set of ACEs? Another very common piece of language you'll hear about trauma is the trauma response. Now, this is not a guaranteed outcome after a traumatic event. Data suggests that there are factors that can prevent the after effects of trauma, particularly providing the person who experienced it with a sense of safety and community in the aftermath. Essentially, you could call this processing the trauma. However, for many people, if they are not provided with a sense of safety after a traumatic event, the changes to the body fester. In these cases, physical health effects come hand in hand with psychological effects. The primary change is in how the sympathetic nervous system responds to stimuli. It is overactivated and responds frequently when threats are not present. That constant fight or flight response leads to chronic inflammation, which can have nasty health effects that we'll cover in a minute. And depending on the context of the trauma and how the person was cared for in the aftermath, the traumatized person may lack the skills to keep themselves safe in future situations. People who have experienced one trauma are at higher risk of experiencing another one. This is especially true if everyone in the community is traumatized due to the institutionalized effects of poverty and violence. I learned a lot about this firsthand when I worked in Oakland, which was a wonderfully diverse city where I cared for patients from all around the world. Many of the patients I cured for were immigrants from countries they had left because of upheaval, war, genocide, gang violence, natural disasters. The reason to leave was a trauma. The process of leaving was a trauma. The arrival in the United States was a trauma and the community they entered was full of other people who similarly had traumatic backgrounds. In this case, traumatized communities may be so hurt that they continue to traumatize each other through ongoing violence. The members of those communities often end up in our hospitals and our clinics because they are sick. I create this as a model, but I also wanna recognize that as in most things in medicine, the lines are blurred and it's not usually quite so cleanly defined. Most people may go through all three of these in some way, or form. And I don't wanna create the impression that there are no effective treatments. None of this is deterministic so much as it is related. This is a very exciting time in the development and dissemination of many new therapies for trauma, which I don't have the bandwidth to get into in this talk, but I do hope that it is a topic of a future grand rounds. Like I said, when someone has untreated trauma, their sympathetic nervous system reacts to stimuli that don't really merit that response. Behaviorally, this presents in a few characteristic phenotypic patterns. Fight. This is where we often end up calling people difficult patients. People assume that every statement carries behind it the intent to start a conflict. These are the patients who, when you ask them, what do you know about your diabetes, respond with, oh, so you think I'm stupid that I don't know anything about diabetes. In a patient with cognitive impairment, this can look like biting, scratching, or hitting. Flight. We see this in patients who no show to appointments, the patients who say, I just, I can't deal with this right now, and don't engage in care for their chronic conditions. Freeze. These are the patients who sit there and nod during a visit but are internally dissociating. They are disconnected from their bodily experience and may be unable to report symptoms in the same way that other patients do. These are the patients who always look like they're about to cry, but they don't. And sometimes these patients are more difficult to recognize in comparison with patients with the other phenotype. Finally, Fawn. These are the patients who desperately want to show us that they are doing what they told them to do. The ones who say, I'm trying to be a good patient for you, I promise. People with a trauma history may have one predominant way of responding. For example, the fawners will typically be perfectionists and bend over backwards to take care of everyone else. I'm willing to bet money that there are several people in this room who meet that description because many of them make excellent caring professionals. However, they don't typically devote equal attention to caring for themselves.
2: That overactivated
1: sympathetic response has a profound impact on the body. There's four particular means of this. First, it changes how thoughts move through the brain. FMRI data shows that in people with a history of untreated trauma, different regions of the brain are activated when presented with a stimulus compared with people who have no trauma history. The parasympathetic nervous system response does not activate in proportion to the sympathetic nervous response. This has a lot of impacts, in particular on hormone production, especially the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. The production of cortisol changes dramatically in its circadian rhythm, the frequency of production and the duration of its effect. It impacts the ability to get into the deep stages of sleep. There's a bi-directional relationship here between the first two pathologic effects and this one, Worse sleep worsens cognitive and autonomic changes and cognitive and autonomic changes worsen sleep patterns. Because of the impacts on cortisol, it contributes to a pro-inflammatory state. The downstream consequences of this going unchecked for years or decades are vast. I will highlight only a small fragment of the evidence that exists surrounding this topic, but just know that there are thousands of studies that demonstrate increased prevalence and association of trauma with a myriad of adverse health effects. Just to give you a flavor, here's one study that demonstrates a strong link between trauma and the development of lupus. This brings up a point that I want to discuss about healthcare and medicine and race. You may know that for pr- all, pretty much all of the conditions that I just listed, black and brown people have a significantly higher incidence than white people. I would argue as would most people who study race, that trauma is the primary mediator for these phenomena. It's not genetics. As people of African descent have substantially more genetic diversity as a group than do people of European descent. So I think we need to stop making that argument. Instead, it is the impacts of living in a society that enforces a dynamic in which certain people are systematically treated worse than others. In other words, if you are anything other than white in the United States, that in itself and the experience of being minoritized is a traumatic experience that is hazardous to your health, particularly if you are black. And if you're not in the audience nodding and saying, yes, I'm very familiar with the wealth of evidence that exists surrounding this topic in the literature, that is more than I can cover in this talk. And so I have a
2: suggested reading list to familiarize yourself with this topic. Now that we've covered a bit of the trauma basics,
1: I wanna speak in particular to how trauma shows up for people as they get older. Over the last few years, there has been an explosion of studies linking adverse childhood experiences to late life outcomes. I've not found big studies done in the US, but there are three primary sources of data from China, the Netherlands and the UK. So keep in mind that some of the definition of what those ACEs are varies from place to place, as I mentioned earlier. The overall takeaways, however, are that people with a stronger history of adverse experiences in early life tend to be sicker as older adults. If you think about many decades of those pathologic changes of trauma accumulating in a person's body, what that looks like in a person is more disease, less physiologic reserve, worse function and impaired cognition. Culturally, in the UK and the US in particular, over the last 80 years or so, there was a tendency of responding to adversity with a stiff upper lip. So many of the folks who experienced trauma did not process it because to do so was taboo. In these studies, there was some subpopulation analysis looking at resilience, which I have to say is a challenging thing to measure, especially across different cultural constructs. So there's not great uh, data looking at the impact of PTSD or other markers of a trauma response. The best surrogate measure is depression. And the large studies do show that if depression is present, it predicts a likelihood of poor outcomes. I want to focus in particular on cognitive impairment because the care of people with dementia is something that I'm particularly passionate about. This is a VA retrospective cohort study which identified vets with PTSD and match controls to examine the rates of development of dementia over time. As you can see, There is a substantial shift in the curve that begins to split around the age of 60, but is markedly different by the time the cohort was 85. Another study from Sweden looked at adults age 50 and older and is then assessed for recent stressful life events, putting people with two or more of these into the group of interest. Unlike other studies, this group particularly wanted to differentiate between different types of dementia. Unsurprisingly, Given the effects of trauma on the pro-inflammatory state and thus atherosclerotic vascular disease, they found the strongest link between these stressful life events and the development of vascular dementia, with the relative risk being doubled in those with a history of stressful life events. Other data shows that this impact can happen not just from discrete events, like an accident or wartime abuse or loss. Longer term effects of the deprivation of poverty can also do the same thing as the data from China particularly demonstrates. I've also found some more local data from a smaller study that confirms this. I think the study has my favorite acronym of any study ever, um, the Sacramento Area Latino Study on Aging or SALSA. In this convoluted image, you can see that they essentially interviewed older people to find out what socioeconomic status they had spent different parts of their life in, poor on the one hand versus middle class and wealthy on the other hand. What they found was that spending more time being poor, particularly in midlife, led to worse cognitive outcomes. And they concluded that if you start off poor, but if you manage to escape poverty in some way, that can mitigate some of this risk. I would argue that poor kids who access higher education have more opportunities to access things like mental health care in college, which may serve as a pathway for healing. The more pronounced the deprivation, the stronger the association is. Let's talk specifically about the incidence of cognitive impairment in people who are houseless. This was a study done in older people without housing in Oakland. In this case, they defined older as being 50 plus. They recruited study subjects in all of the places where um, people without housing spend their time, shelters, tent encampments, recycling centers, and essentially performed a comprehensive geriatric assessment on all of them. They found a profoundly high rate of cognitive impairment among a relatively young population and noted that they likely underestimated the true prevalence because of the methods that they used in the study. Another smaller study in Tokyo that um, evaluated people without housing found that 44% of the population of interest had cognitive impairment. So we return to this concept of how trauma can potentially add up. When trauma keeps happening on top of existing unprocessed trauma, the rift between the physical and the mental world can become larger and larger. After I spent a few years working in Oakland where that last study was conducted, I started to notice that many of my patients who had the worst life experiences also had the most profound presentation of what could be called dementia with behavioral disturbance. If you line up the list of symptoms in behavioral disturbance with the list of symptoms in PTSD and then add a communication barrier because of cognitive impairment, you find that there's a very close match. To put myself in a more helpful and compassionate state of mind, I like to think of vascular dementia then in an alternative framework that I call end stage trauma disease. Having a hard life is very bad for your brain. Zooming out to talk about older adults in general, as people get closer to the end of life, there's a phenomenon that frequently occurs called the life review. This happens in many older adults, regardless of whether their brains and nervous system have been injured or healthy they may look back at the events of their life and reflect. In people who have very old wounds that happened at a young age, they may have buried them deep down for decades. But as people get towards the end of their lives, when they do this life review, it often resurfaces old traumatic events. And people with dementia experience a version of this phenomenon. Again, I wanna emphasize the importance of reframing dementia with behavioral disturbance through this lens. As patients develop cognitive impairment, they often lose the compensatory mechanisms that help them cope, even if they buried those memories away for decades. As we begin to talk about being trauma-informed, I ask you to start from a place of recognizing that a person with be- dementia with behavioral disturbance very well may be someone who has been pathologically frightened if you view them as scared rather than as agitated or
2: aggressive how would that change your practice much of the time when people are
1: sick that can be a new source of horror i want to focus in particular on delirium The data on this topic conflicts a little bit, but most of the recent work shows that in the people who have experienced delirium, up to 30% of them will meet criteria for PTSD after the fact. I've since made it a part of my practice to ask patients who are discharged from the hospital, what do you remember of your hospital stay when I'm seeing them and um, for a post-discharge visit? from this practice, I have uncovered many previously undiagnosed cases of delirium. Even in those whose delirium was recognized, this loss of memory is a massive challenge for the patient's future care. If you don't know what happened to you during the hospitalization, then you don't know what that means for your overall health, how you'll need to care for yourself afterwards, what are the overall consequences are, etc. However, many people do have very vivid and frightening memories of their delusions and hallucinations. Here's one story from a patient who survived a case of severe flu that led to ARDS in the ICU.
3: But waking from the coma wouldn't be the end of it. As I now entered- a-
2: Can you turn up the volume on that at all? World of delirium.
3: and experienced a distorted reality driven by auditory and visual hallucinations. What I was seeing and hearing was creating a lot of anxiety and I became paranoid and mistrustful and I could not be persuaded that I was safe and what I was experiencing was not real. Several of the nurses and doctors involved in my care entered into my hallucinations in a negative way, making me very wary of them. For example, a doctor attacked me and beat me up doing kung fu. A nurse mistreated me by pulling me around by my NG tube. And I repeatedly heard nurses having sex at the side of my bed. And the first person I would see come into my line of vision, I knew it was them and that affected how I interacted with them. There were so many delusions. By the time I was discharged to the respiratory ward, I was emerging from the delirium and slowly regaining clarity of thought. While there, I began to reflect on events during my time in ICU, and realised that I had six weeks worth of memories of a life I didn't live. Alongside this, new memories were surfacing every day, and I was struggling to determine what was real and what was imagined. Though I know and understand these are false memories, I still have emotions attached to them due to the impact of their perceived authenticity. In the months following hospital discharge, I suffered a psychological fallout that would lead to me being clinically diagnosed with PTSD. And receiving 18 months of weekly counselling, CBT and EMDR therapy. To help process my memories, nearly 12 years later, I can still recall them nightmares with clarity. And they haunted me for a long time after in the form of flashbacks and intrusive thoughts. It truly was a miserable experience.
1: Sorry about the technical difficulties.
2: So this feels like a lot of bad news, right?
1: Bad things are bad and horrific experiences can have far-reaching consequences. The good news is that we can play a big role in helping our patients feel better. Let me equip you with some tools on how to do that. The four Rs of trauma-informed care developed by SAMHSA are to realize that it is present in many of our patients to recognize the signs, to respond by the way that we treat our patients, both interpersonally and systematically, and to resist making it worse. I'd add a fifth that I've found incredibly important, which is relationship. Here's a tip that has worked really well for me that I've never heard anyone else say. When you have a patient who is from a more minoritized group than you are, You need to try harder. You need to assume that you're not going to do a great job by them and actively try to do better. Assume that they have been hurt by people like you who look like you or who have the job that you do. Assume that they are predisposed to what you are going to think is a disproportionate reaction. Assume that you need to proceed with kindness. Assume that you need to build trust before caring for them. And believe people when they tell you their horror stories. Give them the honor of trusting your patients. Let's start with the case of Miriam, a patient I met in the nursing home who the staff was very concerned about because of her aggressive and agitated behaviors. I'm gonna present you with two alternate summary statements that could be used to describe this patient. Statement number one is that she is a 90-year-old female with dementia with behavioral disturbance and failure to thrive. Statement number two is that she is a 90 year old female survivor of the Holocaust who has lingering mistrust of officials and result in avoidant and aggressive behaviors. Both of these are equally accurate. However, the first statement fails to evoke any sense of empathy or care while the second one completely changes how you would approach her. This is the first step of being trauma informed to assume that behind behaviors there is a story. This particular patient had developed peripheral vision loss from untreated glaucoma, which led her to her being easily startled when someone approached her from a direction that she couldn't see. From her time in the Holocaust, she was terrified of being poisoned and wouldn't eat any food unless she was able to watch it being prepared. And the food prep area in this unit was out of her line of sight. Rather than giving her mirtazapine or quetiapine, the treatment of choice then became paying greater attention to how her wheelchair was positioned and being careful to ensure that she could see her surroundings more easily. The second step of trauma-informed care is to prioritize developing human relationships with your patients. I wanna acknowledge that this can be hard in the day of hospitalists with a census of 18 and PCPs with 15 minute visits. So I wanna recommend a really great resource, which is the American Academy of Communication and Healthcare. This is a training group that has a wealth of educational materials, including reading lists on their website. This framework of suggestions on how to make an encounter with a patient more conducive to developing a relationship is one that I've used for the last seven years or so with a lot of success. It harkens back to a sociologic framework developed by Arthur Kleinman known as the illness narrative or illness experience, asking us to spend as much of our time learning about who the patient is, what they think, and how they feel about how they're doing as in addition to the physical manifestations of their illness. It also ensures that we honor our role as the patient's teacher in addition to their healer. I'll demonstrate what this looks like using the case of Malcolm. I met Malcolm when I admitted him to a nursing home. My colleagues who'd been caring for him for about six months told me that he was difficult. They said he was frequently unwilling to participate in many aspects of his exam and seemed very guarded when taking a history. They described him as manipulative and lazy. And as evidence, they cited that his back MRI was normal and his inability to walk was deconditioning. When I got to the sniff, the nurses told me that he was demanding to have cough syrup, even though they never heard him cough. So when I met him, I asked him that question. What do you remember of your hospitalization? He actually had no idea why he'd been hospitalized. So my first encounter with him was pretty tense. It was spent helping him to understand that he was hospitalized for altered mental status because of methamphetamine use. It was clear to me that he viewed me similarly to how he viewed the police, that I was there to judge him and to get him in trouble rather than to make him feel better. So I utilized all the parts of relationship-centered communication that I could. Small talk before a big talk. So at my next visit to see him, we just chit-chatted. We talked about how terrible the food was at the nursing home. We talked about his roommate's latest shenanigans. We took the temperature in the room and brought it down a couple degrees. So we felt a little more comfortable. Then we discussed, what do you wanna talk about? What do I wanna talk about? I wanted to talk about how we could get him walking again, which meant participating with PT. He wanted me to prescribe him Robitussin for a cough because his roommate was coughing. So we were gonna talk
2: about both of those things. In order to pursue his perspective, I asked him to tell me about some of his previous
1: experiences with healthcare. And what I learned is that he'd never felt well treated by anyone in healthcare that he'd encountered. The first thing that anyone learned about him was that he'd been locked up and then that was all they saw. A ne'er do well, a problem child, a drug seeker. He said no one had ever had faith in his ability to be a human, be a decent human being. So I reflected that back to him, and I said I could tell how much that must have hurt, but that wasn't why I was there. I was there to help motivate and inspire him, not to judge him. So then I chunked and checked. I gave him little bits of information at a time and made sure we were on the same page after each one did he know that his mri showed no spinal problems no maybe they told him in the hospital but he was out of it and so he was learning this for the first time okay so i told him that being able to walk again was only going to happen with hard work was he up for that yes he was okay that meant working with all of the physical therapists including the one whose attitude was a problem. Could he do that? Yes, he could, okay. Once we got there, I left with some next steps. I promised I would write him a prescription for both Robitussin and Tessalon pearls. He promised me that he was gonna do his PT and he would report back to me. By giving him Robitussin and Tessalon pearls, I was able to build enough of a relationship with him that he was more willing to listen to me when I said the only way he was going to get out of the sniff was by working hard with physical therapy, even if he didn't like the guy. It took four months. At my last visit to see him right before I left that job to move here to Portland, he called out to me, hey doc, from his wheelchair. When I was in the hallway and said, come with me, follow me to the rehab gym where He self-transferred and got himself to the parallel bars to demonstrate to me that he was starting to walk again. And he thanked me for listening to him. The rest of my team, including the nurses, both at my clinic and at the SNF, PT, OT, and the social worker had all essentially written him off as going to be a long-term SNF resident in a wheelchair. It took recognizing that he had been traumatized and working through that to develop a relationship that ultimately led to his healing. I also want to point out that providing relationship-centered, trauma-informed care did not mean learning every detail of his trauma history. Let's be honest, this man had been in prison for more than a decade. If I know one thing for certain, it's that his life wasn't going great in order to get there. and It probably wasn't great while he was in there either but I don't need to ask about that in order to be trauma informed and know that he had a trauma history. The only parts I did learn were what he told me about mistrust. Providing trauma informed care does not mean having to pry for the details of someone's past if they don't readily share it with you. Trauma informed care also means shifting your mindset. There's a hidden curriculum in your training which is the idea that we as doctors can fix problems. Every test you've ever taken makes this assumption. We assume that that's why patients come to us and everything's oriented around that. We open the chart by looking at the problem list. Trauma-informed care demands that we sometimes take a different approach. Instead of just focusing on fixing problems, we give equal weight to making people feel better, even if that is only in the context of our interpersonal relationship.
2: This step is what separates the doctors from the healers. I return to the idea that sometimes a patient needs a friend. And sometimes that friend is us. And we don't hurt our friends. I have done a bit of teaching to many of you already
1: about caring for patients with delirium and dementia. I wanna call out how frightening the experience of being sick when your brain is not doing well can be, and ask you to proactively focus on how you can be a source of safety for your patients when they are ill and frightened. And let me be extremely clear about one point in particular. Trauma-informed care never includes the physical restraint of older adults with damaged brains.
2: I want to talk about something that horrified me here at this hospital that I recently learned about.
1: About a month ago, I was leading an interactive case scenario with the family medicine residents at Milwaukee about a patient with delirium and agitation. And at the end of that session, as we were in the Q&A portion, one of the residents said to me, You know, we're often called to a code gray when things have already escalated and it's really difficult to manage. What do you do then? And so we talked about some ideas of what to do. You know, for example, if the staff around are already really keyed up, telling them, you know what, why don't you take a break and let me relieve you, you can go step out of the room and cool down for a minute. The resident then followed up with a question asking me, do you have any alternatives to the spit hood? The spit hood. I didn't know what that was. And so I learned from her that it was exactly what it sounded like. She described it as something out of Guantanamo Bay. So I did some asking around of my fellow geriatricians and hospitalists. And I learned from one hospitalist who now works at Milwaukee, that he'd never seen it used there, but he had seen it used here at St. Vincent's. That prompted me to come to my boss, Steve Freer, who immediately said he would be looking into it and ensuring that it would never again be a tool that our staff would reach for. That is being trauma informed, and all of us need to do the same. We have to have the spine to stand up
2: in the face of mistreatment of our patients. We have to respond with kindness. I want to conclude with one particularly difficult case of Kim. Kim was referred to
1: my home-based primary care program by the hospital because she was a frequent flyer. And as I took care of her, I learned that many of the reasons why her wounds kept getting re- infected over and over again was because of lapses in her home health nursing because of a crummy Medicare Advantage plan that didn't contract with many of the home health agencies in her area. However, the situation was also worsened by hygiene problems. She had significantly impaired mobility and great difficulty getting up the stairs to the only full bathroom in her house. As I got to know her, she confided in me that she'd been struggling with recurrent PTSD symptoms, which previously had been under very good control for a couple of decades until her recent hospitalization. As a young girl, Kim had been molested by a family member repeatedly. As she went through puberty, She unconsciously worked to make herself become as unattractive as possible in the hopes that that would keep her safe. Some of that meant gaining weight, which later led to the worsening of her lymphedema and her mobility. In midlife, she found a lot of healing in the church. She was devoutly religious and had a lot of church members who would come and look after her. As an older adult, when she was hospitalized, at one point she was sick enough to require ICU level care from sepsis from her wounds. During that time, the team felt that she needed a Foley catheter for strict monitoring of her I's and O's. She was severely ill, terrified, and feeling vulnerable. While she wasn't delirious, she said she didn't feel like she could adequately express herself to her clinicians during that state. She's told me the story of drawing her lymphedematous legs tightly closed when a nurse tried to place a Foley catheter. In response to that, the nurse enlisted the help of several other staff members who held down her arms and legs, pulling her legs apart in order to insert the Foley. A trauma informed way of doing this would have been to get Kim's permission to place a catheter to talk her through the procedure step by step and to pause if she expressed discomfort through either verbal or nonverbal means. Trauma informed care means talking to a patient before every time you touched their body about what you're going to do and getting their consent before proceeding. This was the opposite of trauma-informed care. This was assault. In the chart, what was documented was difficult Foley placement. What she experienced was substantial iatrogenic harm. Her PTSD had actually been in pretty effectively treated at that point and was in remission. But after that hospitalization, it came back in full force. She had more difficulty sleeping. Her hygiene, which had already been a challenge, became impossible because she did not want to interact with her own naked body. A few months after that episode, she died. I'm sure that many of you have a Kim in your practice, someone who has told you a horror story about their care. I filed a grievance on Kim's behalf with the hospital filing a grievance can be trauma informed care. At the bare minimum, I think all of us can speak up for our patients when they are harmed, and I hope that we can do more than that. I don't know what would have prevented Kim from dying, if anything. I do know that what those nurses did failed to represent developing a friendly and trustworthy relationship with her. I wondered afterward, would it have made a difference if I had documented in her chart that she had been molested by a family member Would she have been treated differently, maybe with more care? But that opened up a big can of worms. In the age of electronic medical records, when we document something, a lot of people can see it. Did I want Kim's ophthalmologist to know that she'd been molested by a family member? Was that any of their business? I don't have any easy answers to address this. I think that there's importance to documenting in a problem that someone has a history of PTSD or a history of trauma. But I think we owe it to our patients to be very mindful of how we document their secrets. When someone confesses something to us, that's a sacred space that they've created with us. I would at the very least consider asking the patient what they would and wouldn't like to be written down. I wanna end by returning to the fact that patients are not the only ones who have been hurt. Many of us in this room and many of our colleagues will have been as well. I'll share that I am someone with a higher than average ACEs score. At times in my career, I have been in rooms with patients, I have been in meetings with colleagues, or even in a Grand Rounds auditorium while experiencing a state of flight or a state of freeze. And sometimes when I think back to those moments, I have a lot of embarrassment or shame when I think about my behavior during those situations. But oftentimes, being at work brought out my trauma response. When the COVID pandemic hit and my workload became less sustainable, that acted as a catalyst for many of my long buried wounds to open back up again. My story is not unique. Many of us have experienced this in the last few years. A lot of us are walking around with a lot of hurt in our hearts. The solution for me has been to invest heavily in my parasympathetic nervous system to ground to seek healing environments and practices, none of which are ones recommended by Cochrane guidelines. It meant giving myself an enormous amount of grace to be an imperfect human while also working to constantly become a better physician. Practicing trauma-informed care as a physician has been healing to me in many ways. It makes me feel more confident that I'm doing the right thing for my patients, even when their lives are really hard, and even when it sometimes feels impossible. Being a trauma-informed healthcare system means creating work environments for ourselves and our colleagues that has some breathing room in it. It means giving people some grace when they come to work in a traumatized state. It means being a friend to your colleagues, your supervisees, and your supervisors. It means valuing the relationships that we have with each other and with our patients just as much as we value our rates of colon cancer screening. Healthcare in the United States right now isn't kind of a rough place and Providence is no exception to that. I hope that the way out of our current quagmire will be one that's marked by compassion and genuine relationships and that places less emphasis on things like productivity
2: and stakeholder return on investment. In conclusion, What I want you to take away from this talk is that trauma is everywhere.
1: In our patients lives, their families, and our own. And it's a big deal. It has big complications that lead to health problems that exist in our patients and that we see frequently and often become more pronounced, not less, as people have more time with them. If we're going to take care of people who have been traumatized in the past, we have to start by caring
2: for them by treating them with thought time and thoughtfulness and by being a friend. Thank you.
0: Dr. Perry, many thanks so much to reflect on. Um, Take a deep breath and look for questions here in the auditorium. I think we're all thinking deeply. Um, I'll start with one question um, which I think you have partially helped answer for me, um starting from a place of assuming trauma often. Um, but you also made some careful comments about. Um, being able to in, engage in exploration to better understand uh, a person and their perspective without asking or needing disclosure of specifics. I wondered if you could just probe that a little bit deeper in terms of language um, techniques, thoughts.
1: Sure. I think one of the things is to recognize the emotions that you're getting, especially when they're difficult ones. So a way that I would do that, for example, would be to say. And you know, I spent a lot of time in California, so I use the word vibes a lot. Um, I'll say, you know, I'm kind of picking up on the vibe that maybe you're not super comfortable in this clinic. Am I hitting the right note? Can you tell me a little bit more about where that might be coming from? I'm wondering if you've had some experiences in the in the past that haven't been so hot um, in healthcare. So by confining it to healthcare, it sort of stays within the confines of our relationship in the context of what's going on without saying like, hey, someone tell me about how terrible your life's been. Like what's, what's going on there? I think coming at it from a place of recognizing the emotion, naming it out loud
2: and asking a related question. Thanks, very helpful. Any questions here in the room? Way to start your Tuesday, Dr. Perry (laughs) bringing us all down.
0: So okay, that means I get to keep asking. Um, Next, um, clearly opened with thoughts about. um, Time uh, and important to think about as we think about systemic change perhaps as well, Um, but with regard to what is more immediately controllable and interpersonal interactions, um, two questions I had. One was, um, once again, any specific sort of thoughts, language techniques about things that can be done um, within the constraints of time? Um, And also specific thoughts in an era where we have many transitions of care, um, many Um, caring physicians, but who may not always be the same person, Um, any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, uh, two great questions. So one at a time. I think the shorter the time you have with a patient at a time, the more you have to look longitudinally um, and the more you have to shift your mind about goals. Um, I think particularly this can be challenging when you're first starting out residency and you have just been taking so many tests learning all of the right things to do for your patient, so you walk into an encounter and you've got you're like i've got 15 things that's a care gap that needs to be addressed with this patient and i would say you've got to reshift your mindset to say if i only have 30 minutes with that patient i will not expect to accomplish any of those in this visit all i'm going to do is just try to get to know this person and my goal for this visit will be that they come back to the next visit so and that's, I think, probably one of the biggest challenges of residency training is learning to have that longitudinal mindset. And I would say it's challenging even for me as a geriatrician who's really good at looking at the long-term. Um, so I, I would say that in particular, if all I need to do today is just get to know you and hear what you you know, have to say, and hopefully get you to like me enough that you'll come back, that's a pretty good goal. Transitions of care can be a much harder one to accomplish. And so I think that's where our system probably needs to change the most because it's very hard to do right by a person who has been hurt so badly if you're just not seeing them more than once. Um, So I think in that sense, we have to relook at our schedules, but I think you can always be a human being when a person is in front of you and never underestimate the healing value just showing up for a person in any encounter.
0: Thank you. I'll take the opportunity to read a comment from online. I just want to say thank you. So much on which to reflect. It makes me wonder about the experience of a posy bed as I had a patient beg me to let her out just yesterday.
1: I think a big part of trauma informed care in means put trying to put yourself in the position of the person that you're caring for, especially there's a lot that has been normalized in our hospital settings that is incredibly cruel and we just kind of got used to it. You know, a person walks into our hospital and a very thoughtful nurse says, oh, um, I'm really worried that your hearing aids are gonna get lost, that your glasses are gonna get lost, so why don't you leave those at home? So now you've created a state of sensory impairment for the person. A very thoughtful doctor um, wants to track your fever curve for your pneumonia, so that Tylenol that you usually take three times a day for your knee arthritis, they're gonna stop that. So now you're in sensory deprivation and constant pain. That same doctor orders vitals Q4 hours, 4AM labs and nebulizers Q6 hours. So now you're in a state of sleep deprivation. In addition, you, the thoughtful nurse has an IV in one arm, a continuous pulse ox on the other, and STDs on both legs. So you're now effectively in four point restraints. And we wonder why people get agitated. And then we're like, this patient's trying to get out of bed. Well, of course you try to get out of bed if you were in that state of torture chamber. Um, I think sort of rethinking about what we've sort of started to consider as a normal part of hospital life and doing things to stop that. I am really excited and really proud of the efforts that are happening on the ACU right now with the new program for See Me, Still Me. I think that is a very trauma-informed program and I can't wait to see the impacts that it has.
0: That might be a wonderful segue to this next and last question for the morning, which says I work in a strongly interdisciplinary setting. Can you talk about how best to use the talents of RN, social work, chaplain, PT, OT, etc in meeting a person?
1: That's a great point. Um, I hope that some of it comes from our role as teachers. We talk a lot about, you know, who should be the interdisciplinary leader of the team, and for a long time doctors have been sort of the de facto leader. I think we have to earn that title in a lot of ways by making sure that we have taught a lot of these concepts now that we've learned them to our colleagues, and then soliciting their ideas. Um, Remember that if you come into a patient's room trying to manage a challenging situation, the person who's caring for that patient may themselves also be traumatized and may be in a state of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And coming to them with that same kindness that you also approach the patient, I think is key. Um, I think looking at some of the systemic level problems that we have and trying to come together to solve them as a group is really the only way forward
0: Great. Thank you so much um for this tremendously useful and thought-provoking talk, Dr. Perry. Um, happy Tuesday.
1: Thank you.